Nobody asked for another podcast, so here you go. This is yet another Infra Podcast. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the yet another Infra Podcast. I'm your host, Vitaly Gorin, co-founder and CEO of Ferris AI. Today, we're launching our very first episode of the new infrastructure podcast based on the content of the excellent Yet Another Infra Group or YAG Discord server. Today, we're joined by Alex Glamercy of Moment.dev and a true YAG OG, Moin Nadim, ML researcher at Mosaic ML, Lauren Balik of Copyright Analyst, and Jamin Ball, partner at Altimeter Capital. In this episode, we will be discussing generative AI and how it is different than predictive AI, the exciting investment opportunities in the generative AI space, who will likely be the winners of this category, and the topic of usage-based pricing versus seed-based pricing as it pertains to the current marketing conditions we're in. Hope you enjoy. I think one of the things that's about the space right now is that AI is having its moments. So Stable Diffusion at this point, I think, is one of, if not the most popular open source projects of all time. Jasper, I believe, hit 80 million ARR in a single year. Well, to be determined whether that's a stable business model, but it's a lot of revenue to generate very quickly. Language models like Luther are very highly downloaded. I think they are 25 million downloads at this point. Lenza is making like $5 million a day. I think maybe a reasonable place to start the conversation would be to ask Moyne, who works at Mosaic and also is a PhD student at Stanford, just to talk a little bit about some of the one-on-one stuff, like what is generative AI versus predictive AI? And how should we think about that space right now? Yeah, this field really started to take off this year. Well, I guess starting 2020 started to take off and now everyone sees the implications of it. Before we used to have this whole paradigm called discriminative AI, which is basically can we split things into classes? You can imagine this was useful for things like fraud detection. Is it fraud or not fraud? You could classify medical billing codes and all this stuff. And this is what I think the real regime of machine learning from 2016 to 2020 was about. Like that's the value. Then all of a sudden around 2018 and 2020, the research in generating things and service classified things started to really take off. That was extremely useful because sometimes if you generate something, it's economical or useful than just putting something in a particular bucket. The second part is that if the machine is wrong about generating something, if it's creative, it's a lot more acceptable. So this failure case is a lot more acceptable. So that's what the broad idea is between generative versus predictive is first we were able to put something into a particular class or learn the differences between things. And now we're actually able to create things. It's Basically, my understanding of AI is that generative models have been around for a fairly long time. So in the mid-2000s till sort of 2015 area, in the Bayesian area, you did have generative models of like language, but the problem was they weren't actually good enough to do text synthesis. In a period of 10 years, we went from open book, not on track to solving it in our lifetimes, to almost completely closed book, totally solved problem in text synthesis, which is a thing that I, I think is pretty rare in science, but also pretty rare in computer science in particular. And yeah. Is that a fair summary of like what happened in the space? That's pretty accurate. I mean, we've had generative models almost since this, but the problem is that they barely work, right? For instance, there's the hidden Markov models that have been around since forever. And those you can just basically have a state space transitions and sample a word based off of the transition probabilities. But the problem is that the text that was generated was pretty low quality, pretty low fidelity. And as a result, it was economically useful. Then all of a sudden transformers came around and that was the first time that people like their jaw dropped and they were like, wow, this is actually economically useful. It seems a couple of things that have changed recently in my estimation, if I'm understanding correctly. So one is the increased focus on attention, like the attention is all you need paper. And the second is transformers. Can you say a little bit about those and talk about how they have changed the space and why people should care about this stuff? Yeah, really good question. So the way to think about it is originally people started off with basically doing transitions between words. That was what they did in the 2000s, barely worked. And they're like, okay, maybe we need some better way to manage long-term context. They tried that. It worked a little better, but still not enough to be economical. 
And then in 20, I think 17, this attention is all you need favorite kit. And when it came out, everyone immediately was like, oh, this is going to be useful. But I don't think anyone predicted exactly how useful it was going to be. If you look back on Twitter around that time, right when it came out, for instance, there's tweets of from Aiden Gomez, who was like, yeah, I just got hit up my, I was sleeping at the floor at Google trying to get this paper in during that night. And the next morning, everyone's like, oh my God, this is actually going to be extremely useful. So people knew it was going to be big. No one ever knew it would be this big. The difference is that first, what people used to do is try and model things over extremely long range context and no one would actually consider the hardware. And now instead what people are doing is they're saying, Hey, you have a small set of words and you can attend from one word to another, which isn't a new concept, but we're not going to actually have this fine infinite range to reason over. It's actually going to be very small range and it's going to be constrained. If you can do anything past that range, then you're just out. That was actually a really good insight that led to basically constraining the state space that made things more manageable. And the second is this idea of multiplicative interaction in the attention mechanism itself. That's a little more researchy. What's changed over the last couple of years? My understanding is that hardware has also made a lot of things that were not possible before. And in particular, it seems we have essentially supercomputers that make it plausible to train these enormous language models. Can you talk about a little bit about how that has changed over the last couple of years and what the implications of that generally are? Yeah, the quote I like to say is it's Jensen's world and we're all just living in it. Jensen did this amazing pivot from graphics into machine learning around 2010-ish. I was listening to the Acquired podcast the other day and they were talking about how one day someone apparently just emailed Jensen. They're like, hey, heads up, your CUDA help me basically do what used to take a month in one day. And that's when Jensen realized the potential on scientific computing. But trends, NVIDIA's accelerators are nearly increasing FOSS by quite a bit year over year. So we used to go from 30 teraflops to 300 on the a100 to what looks like the H100 will be nearly six times better than that. So for increasing the underlying graphics card by that much year over year, we're going to see a lot of downstream improvements just as a function of that. The cost per basically flop is almost a halving year over year. I think we covered all the 101 stuff. I typically for the podcast, I'm actually not sure if we want to experience yeah. Chris, but I know Vitaly, you've also worked a lot in AI and I, there's a bunch of stuff that we also wanted to cut. So I think the conversation also started at least the most recent manifestation of the conversation on the channel about a week ago, but Moin, you posted the Alex Raker uh, post from historical about the widening gap between generative and predictive modeling. Can you explain what that gap is what he refers to and why you seem to disagree with his opinion there. So I'm a fan of balance overall, and I think he has a pretty reasonable take. He posts this plot of where the x-axis is predictive, the x-axis is time, and you see this gap between the value and accuracy of predictive versus generative AI. And he calls this the data gap, where as you, as basically your data gets more and more, predictive actually doesn't get that much better because of the long tail, versus generative gets quite a bit better as a function of how much time and how much data you put. And what he claims is if you're going to put something in production that's fully autonomous and fully pledged, you can't do that with generative alone and you need a predictive AI with a ton of data, with a ton of root supervision to get there. To me, this felt like he's talking his book. It, I think instead of trying to get the, all the way to full autonomous systems, you should just put a human in the loop and that's a better way to tail, to tame the long tail of this data. And then furthermore, generative AI is more than just, can you generate this data, right? It's well, can be used as a form of reasoning, but I think he's missing that point as well. One of the things that also came out of this discussion between Gary AI and Purdue is this kind of solid nuance point where it seems that in many of the predictive tasks, generalized models just 
don't do really well. It's hard for me to even think about just global model that everyone can use and you can actually build a business around it. But it seems to be very different in the generative conversation. And that begs the question about which models will eventually actually be even a more cost effective because on one hand you might say well generally AI costs so much more to train but on the other hand maybe there will be three companies in the world that train them and then everyone else will use them versus the ones that are more the predictive ones are every single company needs to retrain them on more data what do you think we'll see there yeah that's a really good question i'm also curious for other people's thoughts the way I look at it is it's almost like a new AWS layer that's emerging. And that angle leads to basically cloud repatriation angle as well. So when you're getting started, you're a brand new startup, you shouldn't actually spend any time training the models. Get use OpenAI's models and prove out your basically prove out PMF. And that'll be get you good enough to get to that 80, 99% use case. You actually can't do any better on your own because you don't even have the data to do better on your own. Once your product gets there, once let's say you're a Jasper, now you have a ton of users, you have you've built a UX that you can collect the data. Then you basically will hop off the OpenAI's API because you're bleeding your margins to OpenAI and you would go and train your own models. You have the data because your product collects it. You have these vendors to train your own models will exist. Mosaic is one of them. And then you go and train your own models and now you can go and train that domain specific model that has a little better performance that you don't bleed your margins up to. So that's how I see that future kind of merging. This basically looks like cloud repatriation where we start on AWS and after a certain point when it, you think it makes sense, you want to start actually building your own for instead. Jim, and uh, thank you for joining us and more from the venture capital side. And it seems that this is what everyone is talking about. These generative AI companies raised being these giant rounds. This is people heralding it. Crypto is dead. This is in crypto. And kind of what are your thoughts on this new moment that we're seeing in AI? Does it provide you of something? How big do you think it can get? Any thoughts you might have there? I think it's hard not just to be excited broadly, more in theory, right? If that makes sense. I think if you look through the last few decades, I think what you see is a lot of the productivity gains that we've seen is a direct result of, of big technological improvements, right? Whether that was the internet, whether that was the cloud, whatever it is, you can see AI being that next wave of productivity gains, whether it's generative AI or others. I think right now we're in this excitement haze where there's a lot of excitement around the technology. I think what I'm looking at and trying to think through is, okay, ultimately what, what is actually going to, or who is actually going to be able to build real businesses behind it? Because there is this question of, it's a lot of cool things you can tinker with. There are some existing markets, right? You can look at the image space and say, Hey, hey if I wanted to create some piece of marketing copy, and I want an image of myself rock climbing, giving a thumbs up. I can go hire some Photoshop editor to create that image for me, pay him a hundred bucks, or I can create it with a diffusion model, right? And pay a few cents. And so I think there's there's some carryover. There's, there's some existing markets, but I think the biggest thing for me is ultimately, will these be good businesses? Will they have a margin structure and a bottom line that ultimately results in cash flow being generated? And ultimately, where does the value accrue? Does it accrue to the large language model providers? Does it accrue to the incumbents, right? I think a lot of our viewpoints is that a lot of the value will accrue to the incumbents. Incumbents, I mean, folks like an NVIDIA, folks like a Microsoft. But again, I think we're in these early innings where we're still trying to wrap our head around like where will value accrue? Where will margin be generated? It's hard not to be excited overall, but I'd say we're, we're more than that cautiously optimistic trying to figure out which layers of the stack will generate the most value while, while being incredibly excited about the potential at the same time. Can I think 
the truth is we don't know and we're probably not going to know it. It seems like the fundamentals of the space are not settled yet. So if you'd asked people a couple of years ago about this space, I think people would have said something to the effect of the large providers are going to end up owning most of the space because they have all the data and all the ability to train it. And I don't think that's not necessarily true. I think that um, stuff like stable diffusion is proving that you can get a certain, it, it is not necessarily true that these people are going to hold monopolies over that stuff. And if that's not true, then what else is not true about the space? I don't think we know. And I think that a lot of the characteristics of the space look a lot more like basic science that you do in a field like biology than it does traditional computer science because you can't plausibly know everything that is that is important to that you, you can't plausibly know everything about the model that's important ahead of time. I think the point on margin structure is also interesting. The first error told us showed us that these have lower margins than traditional SaaS businesses. That's also because they're pretty services based. I think the joke that Martina and I like to make is that we're actually just sloshing money between GPUs and people. And the money that we used to spend on people and data labeling and doing services is now just being spent on GPUs instead. So I'm very curious if these businesses are still going to have that same 60% instead of 80% gross margin that the first wave looked like. In my early implication, looking at how much compute people are using leans to be yes. What we're seeing here the last couple of months is a lot of folks doing their chat GPT stuff online, doing, you know, toy, people call it toy models, toy tape stuff. And that's cool. That gets the buzz going. That gets people engaged. But where long-term is the value going to accrue? And I don't see, I don't see this anywhere, but being whoever owns the GPU in certain cases, whoever owns the GPU is going to win. And whoever at the end state can make something that's commercially viable for consumers, if you're going into a pure consumer model, not be to be making stuff that's goofy or cool, like we saw the whole NFT wave a year ago. There's going to be a version of that here. I, I'm convinced. So where is this value going to accrue is my question. Because I don't know the answer to that yet. Anyone who owns the hardware is in a good spot. And anyone who is getting whatever uh, new visual, new whatever, they're going to make some money too. But where does this settle out in two to three years? After the novelty wears off and it becomes the de facto way of working potentially? Yeah, I think it's a super interesting question because in many ways you can you can almost break down the stack into into a couple layers, right? At the top, you have apps, then you have hosting platforms, then you have models, then you have cloud providers, right? The GPU clouds of the world, the core weaves, the lambdas, and then all the way down to the silicon at the bottom. And I think it's a fair question. Could you imagine being at NVIDIA right now and saying, or thinking, what if we build an AWS inside of NVIDIA? right? And own right. The, the ML cloud. That is a fascinating question, I think, to ask, which we'll, we'll see. I have no idea how they're planning to play it or where different value or where margin will accrue. But I mean, you have tons of hosting platforms, whether it's a replicate on the imaging side or like a hugging face, you have the diffusion models, you have the large language models, the cloud providers, the silicon. There's tons of excitement. There's tons of stuff happening. And I think one investing approach from the venture capital side is say, hey, let's put a chip on each on each piece of the stack. And we'll say, we don't know where it's going to accrue, but we know this is an area in a market that we care about. So let's just go make a bunch of different bets. And hopefully, right, we hit a big on, on one of them. Or it's, let's wait a little bit, let this market simmer a bit more and then make more of an educated informed bet, maybe at a little bit later stages, right? So not at the company inception, but 
once the market is played out. But I think all these, I mean, the biggest question I'm most fascinated with is the silicon providers, like what role are they playing in this? Because even in NVIDIA, all of the time and energy and years built around building CUDA, that's harder to replicate the software piece of it. And so I don't know, lots of questions. I think it'll be really interesting to look at this space five, 10 years from now, and we'll just be shocked at the innovation that we see. If I'm not mistaken, Tesla also announced something a la like a GPU cloud that they're going to provide first access to these immense computational resources. And that also will be an interesting way to enter a market that we thought that might be saturated with Google, Amazon, and Microsoft. And we'll see whether a GPU-specific play or AI-specific play can actually make a difference. When we talk about accruing value, where value is going to actually... You could also flip that question out of head and ask, what value are we providing to consumers and which consumers, right? When you think about something like commercial search engines, I think there's an open question meme, which is, is GPT or whatever, is something like a large language model going to replace Google? I think... What's super fascinating about search is search is such a fractal space, right? At the end of the day, in five to 10 years, there's going to be probably five public search companies. There's going to be Elastic, going to be Google. There's probably going to be Algolia, I'm guessing Sourcegraph, and maybe also Glean. And when you think about all of the different domains that it applies, search is incredibly, incredibly complicated and incredibly important to many domains. So if you go talk to legal scholars, they actually have completely different completely different things that they need search engines to optimize for. Because if you are looking for case law and you miss a single law, a single precedent, it could ruin your ability to actually win that case. And so they really need you to retrieve all of the information and report it all back to you. And I think that when I think about what value consumers are actually going to get out of this, I just think, I think an under an underappreciated part of this problem is how complicated getting knowledge is out of all of these different places and making it accessible to people. I think there's consumer web search, which is an obvious application of that. But I actually think that it might be true that there are other verticals that are that are equally as important, which are completely underserved because they don't have the same amount of data. They don't have access to like really good Google engineers to, to build out search relevance pipelines. And that's actually what I'm most excited about is this long tail of information and data architecture problems, which are which are historically underserved because people just don't have access to that kind of infrastructure. That's a very good point, Alex. And I think also given that we're all intra maxes here. I think it's maybe easier for us to see all the improvements on the infrastructure layer and maybe kind of less in the apps. But but I think I'm not saying there are already a couple of a couple of apps that start making millions of dollars a day, basically, right? On like providing people their digital avatars. And I think Laura, you're absolutely right. There some of these apps that have these effects where it weighed off and now but I think we will definitely see more and more of them. Let's switch gears to another topic that a lot of people discussed on the server in, in the last couple of weeks, which is this whole, I think it's now almost like the tabs versus spaces of the emotions, where usage-based pricing versus seed-based pricing, and more specifically, which ones of them are better for the current economy, which one maybe will last longer, things like that. So I think Lauren, there was a, a discussion, at least one of them that started by a new entry to the channel that started about, but I think you also had some ideas around it that might not be exactly aligned with other participants on this episode. And so kind of, if you can elaborate a little bit more on what was the discussion and what are your thoughts on it? I'm curious to hear what uh, Jammin thinks about this, but, uh, I've seen a lot of Kool-Aid around usage-based pricing 
and what it means in my opinion. And usage-based pricing is basically you pay for what you use and it's the cloud model and it's what has not been tested in a recession or a downturn to this point. Yeah, EC2 and S3 were around during the 2008, 2009, that financial crisis. Not the scale it is now. This is the first downturn we're actually ever seeing usage-based cloud model at, at a crossroads, really. And there's a couple of things here that are at play. One is when you talk about usage-based models, like people talk about workloads. And I don't see a lot of investors talk about this. Maybe this is my spicy take, but a workload is a cash flow. So when you put a workload on the cloud, or when you put a workload into Snowflake or into Datadog, or into anything that's cloud or cloud, like a, a layer of abstraction above it, putting a negative cash flow to your business into it, and they're extracting a positive cash flow out of it. And what I have never seen anybody here or any investor really talk about specifically is the idea of exponential workflows that go into this model. And we're in a down market now. And so I'm very curious about how these exponential workloads, like the N squared, you put in more volume, it goes up exponentially, how that all works. I'm curious to hear about how other people may think about usage-based models and, and, and how this all works. Yeah, so maybe, Jaren, you obviously done a lot of writing on some of these companies. Obviously, your firm have invested in, in some of these players without going into specifics. You know, would love to know how do you think about this user-based pricing? Is it the new way to think about everything the same way that SaaS basically killed desktop or software? Or is that just another flavor of doing business? Yeah, it's... Super interesting question. So much to unpack. I think Lauren and I will actually agree on a lot more than, than maybe people anticipate or heard the intro. I, I love the framing, right? Tab spaces, Emacs, usage-based C, like the next iteration of it. Maybe a different, different world, but I like that framing. I think what's, well, one, one reason I'm so excited, similar to Lauren, is that in many ways, a lot of these, not just business models, but businesses are going to be tested for the first time, right? In 2008, like the cloud wasn't that mature in its life cycle. There's maybe 13, 14, 15 public cloud software companies. We have obviously a lot more today and we're going to come out of this cycle with a much clearer picture um, or a much clearer answer to a lot of questions like is cloud resilient with pricing models better. But, but I think on this topic in, in particular, I think it's important to take a step back and say at the end of the day, we're, we're talking about a business model, right? SaaS is a business model. It's, it's basically a financing structure. Instead of paying upfront all at once, we're going to pay over time in smaller increments, right? Usage-based pricing takes that to another extreme and, and even more micro batches. I think it's really hard to, to say top down which business model or pricing model is better, usage-based or seat-based, because what really matters most is which business is mission critical versus which isn't, which products are delivering value, which is which products aren't. And I think for the pricing model discussion, the most important question that companies ask themselves or need to ask is what pricing model is going to tightly align the value that I deliver and the value that customers receive from using my products to the price that I pay them. And to the extent that those two lines, if you want to think of it as a graph, start to diverge, that's where you have a problem. If we look back over the last few years, 
right, call it this age of excess, I think both pricing models benefited a ton. On the seat-based models, right, we had tons of hiring, right, where seat-based products just charged more seats because they had more users. I think we'll see a headwind to that. On the consumption-based models, and, and I think Snowflake talks about like what percent of their workloads are human-driven versus computer-driven, computer just being the recurring stuff, human being more of the ad hoc. I can't remember off the top of my head what that figure is, but I know they talked about it somewhere, right? Usage models benefited from the age of excess, right? Where there just wasn't controls and you had a lot of people doing a, a lot of things. I think the reality is both pricing models benefited a ton from excess over the last few years. I think the reason that I tend to be more pro usage-based, maybe it's because more infrastructure companies tend to have that versus application software, and there's just an inherent bias baked in there for me. But, but I think generally those models tend to align that price paid with value delivered more so than the latter. And that's, I think, what I end up liking. But again, I think there's so many topics to dive into. It's, it's really hard to say what pricing model is better. I think with usage-based pricing, what you end up seeing is someone described it as this. I can't remember who. It's like a buzzsaw. The growth will follow like a buzzsaw tilted on its side. Well, you'll have these rapid periods of expansion followed by periods of optimization, rapid expansion, optimization, rapid expansion, optimization, and it causes buzzsaw. And you get a lot more feedback on that in real time because you're not renegotiating a contract, right? You didn't sign up to use 100 seats for a year. Your contract renewal is coming up in December. Maybe in October, you say, hey, we're not using the 100 seats. We're actually only using 70. We're going to churn unless you kind of give us, there's more friction in the negotiation for a seat-based, whereas you said you can negotiate it. You don't need to negotiate it. You just stop using as much. There's so much to unpack here. And, and, and the question is also, who is making these workloads? Yeah. In this era of excess in the last couple of years, we've also seen this whole bottoms-up motion of the developer is king, you know, the individual contributor is king. We've seen that with all kinds of people turning over and, and, and everything else. Who's making these workloads? And, and I say workloads, but what I really mean is cash flows. And, and a lot of engineers don't understand this. When you make a workload on the cloud, whether that's a DAG in SQL or in something else, you're creating a cash flow. You're creating a negative cash flow out of your business. Uh, you're creating a positive cash flow into whatever, whoever owns the runtime of what you're running it on. And like, what, what, what I am also watching here very closely is how much power to the developer, the developer is king, the dev tools is king, moves to, hey, guys, stop doing that. We're going to, we're going to look at what we're, what we're building here and having a more financial CFO lens on it, which it, which tracks exactly, I run a consultancy that tracks exactly with what I've been seeing in the last year. And these workloads, these cash flows, uh, cash flows into the cloud to various cloud or, or cloud adjacent businesses, seems like it's a bit at risk. And, and I mean, it's, 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 it's fun because We've never seen this before. Yeah, I, I think, I can't remember who said it, but I think I saw a tweet somewhere that I think encapsulates exactly what you're talking about, which it was something along the lines of a lot of these bottoms up companies are about to feel the top down hammer or, or something like that. <laughs> and I think that encapsulates exactly what you're saying. Again, whether it's bottoms up seat based or bottoms up usage based, 
you just have a lot of excess that's permeated its way throughout a lot of organizations that now all of a sudden the CFO who's doing cost analysis and planning is saying, wait a second, how are we paying X for this? Or how do we have Y seats for that? And because when you have distributed controls and distributed decision-making of, hey, a manager has instant approval for a purchase under hundred bucks and some seat-based product is charging eight bucks a seat and it's cool. Me and my two team members start to use it. Then that just grows and all of a sudden, no one's looking at it until all of a sudden you have a reason to. You know, that reason is obviously a lot of the budgeting work that's going on now. And so I think we are going to see a lot of pulling of costs. And it really all boils down to, at the end of the day, who's delivering value? And I read analysis somewhere, of, and, and Lauren, I'm, I'm sure you see a lot of this in, in consultant work. And when you're working with clients, a lot of people will say, hey, they'll take a look at their cloud costs and say, I need to reduce my stun by X. And they'll go in. They'll find ways, they'll find excess, but then what they end up getting to is they'll find excess, but then they'll find new workloads and they end up in a net neutral position where they didn't really change much for the products that are delivering a lot of value. Again, I don't know if that's something you're seeing. It was just a one-off conversation I had, but I do think while you will see optimizations, you still do will continue to see you know, future workloads or cash flows or whatever we want to call them, right? As value is being delivered. But again, to the extent you're not re delivering real value, like it's going to be a tough period for non-mission critical or software that can be bundled in this period we're heading into for the rest of this year. I'd just like to contrast what my view is of how pricing strategy and conversations have evolved over the last 10 years as an entrepreneur. And then I'd love to hear whether that is what you're seeing as well. My understanding of how this unfolded is that if you go back to 2013, 2014, when you have the companies which are now significant public incumbents like Snowflake and Datadog, those companies have very hard time getting their Series A and Series B done, right? I believe if I'm remembering correctly, Snowflake Series B is like $60 million post. And at that point, I understand the business model to be Bob Muglia style, ex-Microsoft, maximizing the lifetime value of the contract and stuff. But one of the things that I think is interesting about this is, is that it was such a surprise that these companies were going to become such good businesses to so many. And when they did become good businesses, they were so resoundingly successful that that I think that the default answer to anybody asking questions is now you sort of try to get to usage-based pricing, optimize NRR and stuff. And I think that a lot of entrepreneurs, I, I don't want to say they're misled by this advice, but sort of uncritically accept it without having actually an understanding of why we got here and what that advice means and why people are saying that stuff. It's not super clear to me that that's always healthier is always counterbalanced by the opposite perspective, which is there are companies like ServiceNow and Salesforce, and those are enormously good businesses. They are fundamentally different operating characteristics than Snowflakes and Datadogs of the world. So that's my perspective as an entrepreneur. I'd love to hear as a person who made a lot of hay investing in Snowflake, whether that is close to what you are seeing as well or completely off base. I mean, your observation's right. I mean, the, that business did have a hard time raising in the early days. It wasn't necessarily a pricing model thing. There was just an existential threat, right? The, the thousand pound gorilla of, of AWS and Redshift and could an independent provider be successful in this market with margins that made sense. But I think it really all goes back to what I was saying earlier, right? Which is, I think the advice of usage-based pricing is better because it lends itself to more NRR, yada, yada. That's misguided, right? At the end of the day, different products will lend themselves to different pricing models. I had a business a few years ago, four or five years ago, they went through a pricing model change because the analysis that they did showed, look, when we look at the underlying usage trends of the business, uh, it's growing on an exponential curve. When we look at what we are 
what our customers are paying us, it's growing at a linear rate with a low slope, right? And so that gap was growing wider and wider. So I think that business could say, hey, look, we can afford to change our pricing model because our customers are saying, we are getting incremental value the more and more we use this product. So we're okay, the ROI makes sense to us. If you try and force a business into a usage-based model that doesn't really align with how the customer is calculating ROI or seeing ROI, that's where it can get really tricky. And that's where you might not even see NRR. I don't think a business should optimize towards NRR. I think George and I, George Fraser, who wrote a post about NRR, had a little back and forth on this in the Discord, right? I think the place where we agree is early stage, right? When you're an early stage business, what matters is just getting customers. Get incremental customers, let them grow, let them ramp. That's going to drive your growth. At the end of the day, you want a high NRR to be a byproduct of a product that customers love that customers continue to use more of. Not something you necessarily optimize for as a metric. It's a byproduct of, of other great things that happen. So I think there's different stage businesses will have different focuses. I think George's more macro point was, hey, early on, I mean, if George and I disagreed on a number of stuff in this post, but I think where we agree was early on, what matters most is getting more customers, getting more logos. They will drive your ultimate growth. Because even a business, you know, a Snowflake or, or other infrastructure companies, the pattern they typically follow is, you sign up a customer, it takes time for them to implement it, start using it. And then once you get to that point, then it takes time to ramp workloads and ramp data. So you have a few different phases until dollars come in the door from deal signed, product gets implemented, usage gets ramped. That takes time. But when you have these Fortune 1000, Global 2000 type customers, getting them in the door for a small contract and then letting them follow that path is super important. I think a lot of infrastructure companies follow that because it, it takes time to ramp. It takes time to move workloads over or adopt new Greenfield logos. I want to jump in here on the cloud and the, the George piece. I wrote a follow-up to George about how uh, all of his math didn't work out on, on the NRR piece. Well, and, and NRR can work, but at the end of the day, when you look at NRR, at a company level, and then the next layer down is an accounts level. You have a number of accounts. You may have 100 accounts, and those 100 accounts pool up to your NRR's business. And then at each of those NRR accounts, accounts that you have, there's a number of workloads. So you're, you're going from, just, just to lay this out in layers, you have the business, you have all of your accounts, and then you have what's happening at each account. And the more of these workloads that grow linear, that, that grow exponentially and not linearly some kind of logarithmic of n value, where are you getting NRR from? Where are you getting your growth from? Well, you have to put new workloads on. And so this is where I think the most interesting piece here is in all of this cloud workloads is, is your net dollar retention coming from new workloads moving on. And if it is, then it shows that you're building customer value, you're building customer equity, you're a good partner. If it's all coming from exponential workloads that exist, then perhaps you're rent seeking. Lauren, could you yeah. define again, when you talk about exponential workloads, Maybe just double click on what you mean by that. I think that's an yeah, important yeah, yeah. point you're making. Sure. If in period one, I'm paying a hundred dollars 
and then in period two, I'm paying $200. Then period three, I'm paying 400 and then 800 and I'm growing exponentially. The workload is growing exponentially in a case of snowflake. Maybe I wrote some bad sequel and it's, it's, it looks like this and all of these small things in aggregate, plus a couple of these things that grow and a log of N or at a one layer, that is, that is the net dollar retention of what I'm throwing into the cloud. And I think when people talk about customer value with all this cloud infra stuff, like the customer is the business, it's the entity of the business that their name's on a contract or whatever. But the person executing on it is the cloud engineer, the data engineer, who, you know, whoever's doing the stuff. And that's a little bit misaligned. And so the question is how much of this usage based stuff is exponential because seats are always going to be linear. You fire a hundred people when the contracts up, there's a pause, there's a little bit of a time lag on there. hundred seats go down. That's how seats work. But this workload stuff, it's really a function of what's exponential and what it looks like reflected in big O more than, more than anything. And I, I just, Maybe like, I, I, I have not heard a lot of investors talk about this, frankly, about what the workloads look like that pull up to an account and what pulls up to revenue collection of an organization. Thank you, first of all, everyone who made it. Honestly, we had only a few great discussions that actually added so much more on top of the discussion that we had on the server and hopefully other folks will see it this way. But again, thank you so much. Mm -hmm.